The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello and welcome to The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. It's our final podcast of 2022. And so, as ever, we're looking back at the worlds of art and heritage over the past 12 months in our review of the year. Before we begin our review of the year, a reminder about our latest subscription offer. You can save more than 50% when you buy a complete print subscription to the art newspaper with full digital access as a gift for a friend, a colleague or even as a treat for yourself. Visit theartnewspaper.com, click subscribe and enter the code XPOD22, that's XPOD22, all in caps. Do also subscribe to this podcast and our sister podcast, A Brush With, wherever you're listening. So, for this year's Review of the Year, I spoke with three members of the art newspaper team. Louisa Buck is our contemporary art correspondent in London. Kabir Jalla is our acting deputy art market editor, also in London. And Ben Sutton is our editor in the Americas, based in New York. I thought we'd begin today by talking about the event which in many ways defined 2022, which is Ukraine. It's really difficult to summarise everything that we've reported on over the year because we've done so much and I would urge people to go to our website to listen to our podcasts from across the year. But it seems to me that there are two things and one of them came into very sharp relief after Ukraine moved back into Kherson, which is this extreme damage to heritage sites and also the looting of museums. Louisa, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, just that it's this terrible thing, isn't it? When people are struggling to live, they're struggling for power, they're struggling for heat, they're struggling for food, they're being bombarded. You know, we feel a bit dilettante sitting here worrying about precious artefacts when lives are at stake. But of course, it's absolutely crucial because it's identity, it's heritage, it's people's sense of self. And once that's vandalised and stolen and defiled, then I think, you know, the whole morale situation, apart from everything else, is absolutely appalling. So, you know, while of course lives come first, I think it's really crucial that every attempt is made to preserve as much heritage, as much culture as possible for the sake of rebuilding, for the sake of morale, for the sake of not letting this war annihilate the most incredible culture. Absolutely. And it's very clear, isn't it, Kabir, that you see that the fact that the Russians may be looting museums, we need independent verification, but it seems that there's widespread looting in museums, for instance. The very fact that they are taking these objects is indicative of this debate about identity in the whole crisis. Of course, it's hugely pointed. And I mean, Russia's history with Ukraine of, you know, wiping out culture is quite long standing. And recently, there was a museum conference held at the Tissenborn and Misa for an exhibition of Ukrainian modernism masterpieces, in which museums for Europe sort of proposed a cultural deal between Europe and Ukraine to preserve that culture, because they are really saying this is a war against culture, it's trying to obliterate something so you can't rebuild easily. It's denying a nation. It's denying a nation. It's denying their independence. And what better way of doing that than by you know, looting, defiling and destroying the artefacts that are evidence of that culture and that nation? Absolutely. Another thing is that we've reported over the year on extraordinary heroism of people still in Ukraine, including artists, of course. Ben, I know that in the States, there's an artist at risk connection that you reported on, but basically trying to help artists from Ukraine. 
Yeah, of course. I mean, it's it's so challenging given how much is needed purely humanitarian and military level uh, in terms of support. To add on top of that, you know, the needs of the culture sector, you know, as Louisa was saying, it seems almost beside the point when lives are at stake. And yet uh, it's so crucial to the the culture being able to survive and, and, and thrive after this war is over. And yeah, indeed, the Pan America, which is a, an organization that protects free speech, has had this program called the Artists at Risk Connection which has been funneling money to artists in Ukraine, in part to just sort of provide them with daily, you know, survival necessities, and then also in order to keep them doing work and, and being able to maintain studios. You sort of can't imagine the basic needs of, of rent and art materials amidst a war, and yet, you know, that those are still very real needs. So there are some initiatives like that, but certainly there's, there's more to be done. Absolutely. And then there's the art students in Ukraine. There's a report that we did on the UAX or UAX. I'm not sure how that's pronounced. But Louisa, this idea that there are people in Ukraine and we want to support their ability to be students of art to continue their lives in Ukraine. The more people's lives continue, the more basically they defy the Russian invasion, the more they foster their culture, their livelihood, they're able to flourish and create. And God knows it's hard enough with this going on all around you. So the more we can do, the better. And I like the fact that the Pinchuk Foundation has its Young Arts Prize, you know, it's carrying on as usual. It's opened the foundation. There's an exhibition there, you know. I mean, you might think again, my God, one should be worrying about food supplies, or should be worrying about all these other things. But I think this is absolutely crucial to keep as much of the infrastructure going. Of course, for people's basic needs and livelihood, artists are working people. They've got to survive. They've got to also be able to create for the future and also document what's going on around them. Absolutely. Of course, there are other sort of major effects of the war. We've endlessly talked about the effects in terms of energy supply and so on. It's had a major effect, Kabir, on the market too, right? It has had a major effect in the market, but also not as well, which is quite interesting. And we saw in early March a lot of activities and statements around the sort of top end of the market, mainly auction houses, cancelling their main Russian sales, which tend to happen in spring. And then also Philips, which is owned by the Mercury Group, which is um, Russian-owned, donating the entire proceeds of one of their sales, around $7 million, to the Ukrainian Red Cross. The thing is that these sort of things... And this time, they are quite low risk, high reward because Russian collectors do not occupy the same, you know, dominance of the market that they maybe did 10, 15 years ago when, you know, Roman Abramovich spent 120 million in one week on art. And so these statements cancelling these sales, I think Russian art sales make up about 0.5% of the annual turnover for Sotheby's. It was a quite easy way to make a statement while not really, you know, having to damage sales. And I wonder... Other countries that are very contentious, you don't see them busting away collectors from those countries. But um, yes, there have been other huge effects on the market. One of the biggest ones has been shipping. The war has caused oil prices to skyrocket. That was one of the factors, but also the Europe to Asia route relies very much on going over Russian airspace. And Russia is the largest cargo owner in the world. And so all of those factors meant that shipping has increased by about seven to 15 times the rate at its peak, which was around July and August. Rates have gone down now since not back to pre-COVID levels, but they're getting there. The effect has been that galleries and people transporting art for biennials, that cost just, you know, came entirely onto them. You either have to then put it onto the collectors or burden it yourself. I want to move on to, and this, really, this is affected a little by the war in Ukraine, which is this idea of museums 
in countries that are actually quite proximate to the war. So on the one hand, there's Poland, when Poland has sort of done very well in terms of its reputation, in terms of helping Ukrainian refugees and so on. But its government and its governmental policies relating to the arts are continuing to cause huge problems in terms of governmental interference. We've had a lot of reports this year. And in one case, Bart de Baer came onto this podcast and talked about a near absurd level of interference from the Polish government in museums in that country. It's, it's, it's an epidemic in, in a certain part of Europe. It happens too in Hungary, Louisa. Well, I think so. And I think also there's a sense of just you know, instrumentalising culture for your political aims. And we thought, well, that had gone away with the degenerate art and the Nazis. We thought this was totalitarian behaviour. And of course, it is totalitarian behaviour. With the move towards the right, governments are being very, very strategic about the way in which they interfere. They meddle in freedom of speech, in culture. They promote certain kinds of points of view. You know, the whole idea of this freedom of speech. And we're getting it in our own government. I mean, you know, on our doorstep in the UK as well, we're seeing this happening. I mean, forget about long arms. You know, the long arms are being cut off as governments, you know, stop museums from removing sculptures of slave owners or making more kind of dialogue about murky pasts of donations. I mean, all this aspect, as culture becomes more prominent, it also becomes much more instrumentalised by the powers that be, I think, across Europe at this point. Kabir, you've been reporting and editing a lot on partition, the anniversary of partition in, in India. And of course, that's a major moment for Indian culture and for this present government. How has that been dealt with and to what extent has that narrative of the Modi government kind of shaped those celebrations? Very much so. I think it's really interesting to look at where 50 years of partition was in 75 years. And 50 years, we were still sort of in that era where globalism was a good thing. And India was celebrating a sort of cosmopolitan turn. We're now seeing quite a revanchist turn instead during the Modi government, instrumentalizing this idea of Hindu nationalism to sort of bolster up the state and very much using culture as a weapon. The biggest cultural story around the 75th anniversary is Modi's redevelopment of the Central Vista in Delhi, which is a prime ministerial avenue. And much of the architecture of that area is Lutyen's architecture. So, you know, early 20th century and late 19th century British architecture. That obviously is a reminder to Modi and his supporters of the British Raj, and therefore they want to take it out and rebuild it in their own style, like any good, you know, right-wing slash dictator person might want to. <laughs> the issue, obviously, is that it's sort of alighting over huge other parts of India's history. India is a land of colonialism and of various empires and it isn't of just one history. And so this is an attempt, a very clear attempt to rewrite that and promote a very different sort of history that he's trying to implement. Louisa, you mentioned the UK situation here. I mean, I would think that a lot of people listening to this outside the UK will have been looking on aghast at British politics this year. And it is having an effect on the arts, isn't it? Well, it absolutely is. I mean, Nadine Doris, the last Culture Secretary, you know, issued a direct directive to the Arts Council that they were only going to get the amount of funding for museums and galleries if there was what they called um, levelling up, which basically means moving the economy up to the north of England. And and there was a whole Arts Council slogan called Let's Create. And basically, the money that was allocated, there were 990 recipients. And of those, um, you know, 276 got grants for the first time, but 127 were dropped altogether. And basically, what the deal was, was, you know, really quite major organisations in London were penalised. The ENO, the English National Opera, is the obvious one, which lost its funding unless it agreed to move to Manchester. The Serpentine, the ICA, Camden Arts Centre, 
Centre. These are all organisations that have been, you know, regular portfolio organisations of the Arts Council for, for decades, had their funding slashed. And they're part of a really elaborate infrastructure. You know, it's not just about rich old London and poor old everywhere else. Of course, there should be more funding for towns and cities and organisations, institutions outside London. And of course, new organisations should be given funding and not just the same old guys picking up the same amount of dosh every time. But, you know, you have to nurture these things. It's so short-sighted of this government and it's so kind of puerile because actually in the grand scheme of things, with the amount of money that's been spent, the amount of money they're giving to the arts is really pretty minuscule in comparison. So don't privilege the North over the South in this rather kind of, you know, showy-offy kind of way when actually everybody needs more support at this point and it needs to be strategic and smart and not to penalise, you know, institutions that are doing really well in London with their local communities. One of the interesting metrics they used the Arts Council panels with Camden Arts Centre and I think also the Serpentine was attendance figures. Now that's not the only way to show how effective you're being, showing how you're influencing your local communities. Actually your outreach, your quality of exhibitions and there's very little expertise on the panels of the Arts Council, particularly where the visual arts are concerned at the moment, which is also very worrying. I could rant on for the entire programme, I won't, <laughs> but I think it's very interesting how the government are using this as a very particular way to kind of demonstrate their kind of grassroots northern allegiances but in a very short-sighted stupid and really quite kind of culture blind kind of way we had jenny lomax former director of the camden arts center on here two podcasts ago and i asked her about why it is that the visual arts don't seem to be as up in arms as the music world and so on there are lots of angry people out there but why isn't there more vocalizing of the anger i don't really understand it well i think a lot of these museums and galleries rely on government funding big time and they don't want to rock the boat also let's not forget that the conservative government for the last few years have been putting a lot of their kind of stooges on the boards of these museums and galleries so you know their trustees are quite often dominated by former government ministers there's a whole sense I think people are cowed and kind of beaten down and I have to say I'm a huge fan in the past but I am a very disappointed in Nicholas Sirota former director of all the Tates now the chair of the Arts Council who I felt kind of rolled over a bit when Nadine Doris issued this directive. I mean, he's not executive as other people who actually are responsible for this, but he could have made more of a fuss. He could have even resigned. I don't know. I feel like there needed to be more of a point made about the way in which, you know, our arts culture industries across the UK, frankly, are being eviscerated. I completely agree with you. I think there's a lot of people from, for instance, the music world who are looking at the situation and going, we want the Nicholas Sirota that used to head the tape and be incredibly strong with government and seem to get miraculous results from them. I mean, there was a thought when he took over at the Arts Council to begin with that he might be slightly stepping away from visual arts because everybody was rather concerned that because he'd been so associated with the Tate that you know he'd be seen to be privileging that. But obviously what's happened with the English National Opera has certainly wiped that one away as they've lost their funding unless they move to Manchester, which they're not going to, obviously, because they can't. And I'm just very disappointed. And I think, you know, the museums and the institutions who've done really well, who've thrived. It's almost like they're being punished for that. It's like, well, you've done okay. You can do well and get funding from somewhere else. And I mean, there's only a certain amount of, of corporate, of commercial funding you can get, particularly when you've got a cost of living crisis on your hands. And never have we needed our museums more. Absolutely. Ben, at least we have some good news out of Brazil in the sense that one populist government has come to an end and things seem to be looking up over there. 
Yes, absolutely. Uh, it's been a you know four pretty grim years in Brazil under the uh, presidency of Jair Bolsonaro, who quite early on in his term, after some scandal-plagued choices to be culture minister, did away with the culture ministry entirely. Now you know we have Lula returning for uh, what will be his third term starting on January first. In fact, just this week uh, he appointed a singer from Baja, Margaret Menezes, uh, to be his culture minister. So uh, already kind of signaling that he has he has plans and intentions to to revive the culture sector there, which has been hard hit not only by the Bolsonaro regime, but also by COVID, obviously. So yeah, that's a, a rare kind of shining moment of optimism in the, the cultural political landscape. Absolutely. And of course, the environmental landscape. I was going to say, thank God for the Amazon as well. That's, that stands a chance. I mean, it's been so terrifying. But yeah. the things are all interconnected, you know, climate emergency, culture emergency, cultural justice, economic justice, environmental justice. So thank God there's some news, good news coming out of Brazil, at least. Absolutely. This is a good moment to move on to our next topic, which is museums and specifically Just Stop Oil, I thought we'd begin with. I spoke to Emma Brown from Just Stop Oil on this podcast, and I think she made a very convincing case for why they're doing what they're doing. I'll just give a little timeline of what's happened. So in July, we had the Ultima Generazione in Italy. They glued themselves to Botticelli. Then in August, we had the same organisation in the Vatican Museums gluing themselves to the plinth of the Laocoon sculpture there. Then we had Letzte Generation in, um, forgive the pronunciation everybody, in Germany and that was several artworks again with glue on frames and close to the pictures. Then we of course had tomato soup thrown onto Van Gogh's sunflowers and we've since had attacks on works by Klimt in Vienna and so on. Louisa, what do you make of it all? Well, I mean, I can't speak for each of these organisations because I don't know each of their agendas beyond the fact, of course, they're supporting environmental causes and are against fossil fuels and so on. But but Just Stop Oil, I think, are really interesting. These are the tomato soup throwers. And indeed, they also made an intervention into Constable's Haywain with a kind of picture of what it would look like, what the Suffolk countryside would look like if it was, you know, annihilated with devastation from, from climate change. And I mean, let's say, say one thing. Their name is Just Stop Oil. That's slightly misleading because actually what they're specifically activating for is for the British government to stop issuing licenses for exploration for oil and gas. I mean, such an obvious no-brainer that they should not be doing this if they have any kind of desire to be green in any way, shape or form. Also, I think Emma Brown, I was very interested when I heard her talking on the Art News podcast, The Week in Art, about how thoughtful she was and about how the fact they do not want to vandalise artworks. They want to make as much of a profile and as much of conspicuous point as they possibly can in a government, particularly ours, that's ruled by the media, it's ruled by PR. And let's not also forget how important, obviously, our museums and galleries are deemed to be. This is the place that these people across Europe, across the world, are choosing to make these interventions, are in these, if you almost like, almost like sacred spaces, you know, they're defiling the sacred spaces. They're not doing it in churches or temples or mosques, they're doing it in museums and galleries. And I think it's so interesting that you know, they're regarded as important enough. And I think, you know, we are in an emergency. It's actually not even an emergency. It's a catastrophe. You know, we've probably reached the tipping point. These are young people. They're frightened, they're angry, and they want to make a change. And by goodness, we're here we are talking about it now, proof in point. So I think, provided they don't actually wreck things, they don't actually irrevocably damage them, I think it's a very good way to get your profile up. They can't do it too much, otherwise it's going to wear thin. But I think... 
you know, the, the strategic way in which they've done it so far has been, to my mind, very effective. And it's also given validation to the other green organisations, Greenpeace or whoever, who are always in the past regarded as these kind of, you know, maverick people making a huge fuss and kerfuffle. Now they look rather establishment. So it's a multi-pronged attack, I think, to make us all realise we've all got to change our ways. Kabir, what do you think? Yeah, well, Louisa, that kind of speaks to something that the researcher James Osden wrote recently on a Substack, where he describes a thing called a radical flank effect, where very radical factions of a social movement can increase support for the more moderate factions. And what this sort of does is, it, you know, it increases donations, publicity, mobilisation around the moderate arm of this movement. And I should say that I am in total support of what they are doing. However, and you're you know, a much younger person than me. And of, <laughs> of, of course, that is true. But it's, in some sense, you can't also help feel a bit bad that they are targeting the very cash-strapped institutions. And this is not a good time for museums. And what we're going to now see is insurance premiums go up, security personnel needs to increase. You know, you go into museums all over Europe now, you need to take off your coats and your bags. That requires more staff. You know, all that kind of stuff does put pressure on our institutions at a time where they don't need it. Of course, the climate catastrophe or crisis is far more important than our museums and, dare I say, art. So no I think it's justified. Dead planet, as they all keep saying. I agree. And I think, you know, there's already quite a lot of security in these places. So it is tough. It's tough on the attendants. It's tough on the guys in the front row who are also trying to, you know, agitate for more pay. But I think desperate times, desperate measures. One thing I do wish is, though, is that the museums that they targeted had clearer links to fossil fuels. I don't know what the Museum Barberini in Potsdam necessarily has to do with fossil fuels. It's owned by a software billionaire. I think that perhaps if they made the links more clear to the museums that are very willingly accepting fossil fuel funding, maybe that would help bolster their point. But again, I'm all for it. It, it was interesting that Culture Unstained, Chris Garrard from Culture Unstained, supported the activism to a certain extent, but did ask them to think think about solidarity with museum workers, for instance. And also, if you think about what Culture Unstained does, it's about protesting fossil fuel sponsorship at museums and so on. I wanted to come to you, Ben, because we haven't had anything, as far as I know, in the US yet of this nature, have we? No, we haven't. Well, actually, I wanted to speak to Kabir's point briefly, which is that, well, you're right, we haven't really had uh, this new wave of, of climate protest in the US yet. One of the major funders of Just Stop Oil and a number of other groups through the Climate Emergency Fund is actually the granddaughter of J. Paul Getty, uh, the founder of the Getty Center in Los Angeles, which is a kind of interesting use of inherited oil wealth. Uh, but she's given a million dollars to this Climate Emergency Fund, which is one of the major supporters of um, Just Stop Oil and a number of other groups, uh, Extinction Rebellion. So it's an interesting kind of way in which an inherited fortune made in part from oil money is going in towards fighting this fight. So um, I think that's a nice kind of little bit of payback. But you're right. I have my own theories on, on why uh, we haven't seen that, that level do you, do you of protest say? here. <laughs> I mean, this could turn into a bit of a rant, but I, I think it's partly because by and large, American society writ large doesn't prize art enough to make it a sort of meaningful target for protest. I think, you know, if you really wanted to get people outraged and people talking, you'd have to target, you know, a football game or some more spectacular thing. Uh, I think there's not the kind of concern for the well-being and safeguarding of art here, by and large. I mean, obviously, there are cities and communities that are uh, exceptions to that in, in major cities and, you know, cultural centers. But I think Sort of if you're trying to appeal and, and get American society at large riled up about something, you're not going to glue yourself to a painting. You're going to, I don't know, streak at the Super Bowl or you know, something like that. Okay. So I just think it's not the right vessel for the message for a U.S. audience. 
I think that's very interesting. And I do think it, it plays to what I said at the very beginning that, you know, for whatever reasons, Europe and Northern Europe does seem to have this, you know, terrific attachment to our temples of art, if you like. Mm. So let's see some streaking at the Super Bowl then for green causes across the across the pond. Absolutely. I mean, to corroborate your point, Ben, uh, just imagine Joe Biden having an opinion on the Whitney Biennial in the way that Germany's chancellor had about Documenta, you know, Americans really don't pay that much attention to culture comparatively, you're right. Really interesting. One point I wanted to make about this is that the point that you made earlier on, Louisa, about Just Oppel taking great care about this. They do the research. They know that the works are glazed and so on and so on. The interesting thing is there was the attack on the Vermeer at the Moritz house in The Hague. There was a group of people and they were affiliated to a version of Just Stop Oil, I think in Belgium. But when we went to Emma Brown at Just Stop Oil and said, you know, were these people you know, directly connected to you? She said she didn't know them. It occurs to me that there is a risk that there will be copycat attacks and they won't be as careful and something like, I don't know, Las Meninas at the Prado, which is not glazed, gets attacked with something and it does permanent damage to it. We just have to cross our fingers and hope that doesn't happen. I mean, the trouble is these things are guerrilla activities. You know, you're not going to be some carefully organised global organisation. Wish they had the funding, they'd be much more effective. I also think there ought to be more demonstrations at the headquarters of the oil companies, of the fossil fuel companies as well. I do think, you know, the museums do go, I mean, privately some museum directors said to me, God, you know, I wish they'd leave us alone. I mean, why don't they just go outside BP, Shell, all these major organisations? And there is a truth in that. But I do think the publicity that you accrue by making this kind of really shocking intervention, and let's hope it's not going to be some kind of long-term destruction, but, you know... They're good restorers. They're people that can fix these things. I hope it doesn't happen. I hope it's not necessary. But, you know, again, desperate times. We are in a catastrophe and people are really frightened. And to that point, I mean, the thing is that Just Stop Oil have very much said we have been protesting oil rigs and, you know, at fossil fuel companies and it hasn't gotten any publicity. So this is the first time you're hearing about us, but we've been around for a while. Exactly. I mean, that thing that the galleries and museums have been saying, which is, you know, we're your allies. We're your, and Just Stop Oil know that. Just yeah. Stop Oil know that most people in the art world are on their side, but they're not doing it for us. They're doing it to create the publicity. And I think a lot of people have been thinking very much too hard about why they're doing this. But, to but a artists degree. make great images. I mean, you know, Culture Declares, co-founded by two artists, you know, a woman on a white horse wearing a living grass coat with Tate's permission, walked into the turbine hall. It was a fantastic image. If it just been a placard nobody would have cared artists can make great images so I think maybe corral some more artists to make protests as well but you know it's a terrible time we're all in a hurry then the temperatures are rising and it's very difficult to do long-term strategies for these things I think so while we're talking about museums and protests and so on Ben the big story in the US museum world continues to be unionisation and it's really continuing apace. I thought we'd begin by talking about the Philadelphia Museum because that's where a lot of the action has been this year, isn't it? Yeah, and that has been by far the sort of most high-profile contract negotiation fight. Um, The Philadelphia Museum of Art is, you know, outside of New York and D.C., probably the most prominent museum on the East Coast. And in the very, very early months of the pandemic, in May 2020, they elected to form a union, and a kind of a unique union within U.S. museums by nature of their structures and their very kind of hierarchical organization. Most museum unions in the U.S., will represent sort of one section of the museum or one sort of group of workers. But this one, rather uncharacteristically, represents people across 
every department and every sector of the museum. So there's security guards and retail workers and curators and librarians and education workers and uh, really kind of the entire uh, spectrum of employees. And they, as I said, formed a union in the spring of 2020 and had been negotiating for their first contract since then that had dragged on for over two years and the museum had gone through some challenges and had laid off a lot of workers because of the pandemic, but had also, by the same token, completed a major expansion designed by Frank Gehry. So, you know, it didn't seem outwardly as if money were completely an issue. And yet the museum was being very tenacious in its negotiations with workers. And so it all came to a head this fall in October. And uh, the museum workers declared that they would going to go on strike first for a day as a sort of warning shot. And that didn't seem to move the museum administration. And so they ended up going on strike continuously. And, and the strike ended up lasting uh, 19 days, I believe, till the museum eventually caved and, and the workers got what they what they wanted. And now they have a, a contract for the next five years. But, you know, they, they were very strategic in, in their timing. A new director was coming on to the museum after the previous director had left. It, literally her first day on the job, the new director, Sasha Suda, coming from the National Gallery of Canada, her first day on the job was the first day of the strike. So quite an introduction to her new workplace. And the museum was also working on uh, a major uh, Matisse exhibition that was about to open. So there were all these concerns about, you know, A, this new director entering at this particularly um, embarrassing moment for the museum. And then also, you know, would they be able to actually open this major lending exhibition of Matisse works without their art handlers and their curators? And so I think all that pressure collectively ultimately meant that the museum came back to the bargaining table and, and workers got what they were looking for. But, you know, as you said, that was really the most high profile of a kind of nationwide unionization movement that began before the pandemic, but was really extenuated by COVID and the layoffs and furloughs that that brought on. Uh, and we're really seeing it, you know, really, truly in every corner of the country. I mean, one of the things that this story really drives home is unionization works. Mm -hmm. There's a sense in which you can see, yes, it was hard won, but they got an increase in pay over the length of the contract. They got better conditions. Mm -hmm. There was an increase in the minimum wage paid by the museum. Unionization works, right? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that they'll tell you, uh, and actually one of the union organizers, actually the union president from the Philadelphia Museum of Art, Adam Rizzo, is writing an article for our leaders page in our January issue. So, But one of the, the big things is that gains won by union workers also applied ultimately to non-union workers. So a lot of the things that even if a, a union at a museum is, is relatively small and only represents workers in a certain department, often the benefits that they win are then also applied to non-unionized workers. And so there's a real kind of ripple effect to these kinds of, of labor fights. So it, it is really meaningful. That's what I was going to ask, Ben. I mean, has it rippled out to other organizations? Have other museums taken up the cause? Because I'm sure low pay isn't exclusive to this one institution. <laughs> Certainly not. Yeah, I mean, there are there are museums, as I said, across the country that are either have formed unions in the past two years or in the process of doing so. Um, the Storm King Sculpture Park, just outside of New York, their workers have just announced uh, their intention to form a union, which the administration have somewhat predictably said that they will not voluntarily recognize, so that will have to go to a, to a vote. And, you know, MoCA Los Angeles is another major institution that formed a union early on in the pandemic, and that I think negotiations there took almost two years, didn't reach the point of a strike. The Philadelphia Museum of Art has really been the one that it kind of reached a crisis point. Uh, and I think the fact that they kind of went into the situation, having furloughed so many workers, having had a fairly 
significant by our world standards uh, Me Too scandal. You know, they were just in a very defensive posture going into it. And I think the workers uh, really had the upper hand there. But I would be shocked if we get through 2023 without some other museum workforce going on strike. Yeah, I mean, it seems like the Brooklyn Museum might be the next. They're certainly in a negotiation that seems pretty tense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, And there have been a number of rallies there around sort of VIP events and board meetings. And I think they also benefit from being in a city where there is a kind of uh, heightened media awareness of museum operations. So I'll be very curious to see how that pans out. One of the interesting things from a non-US perspective about this is that we're very familiar with the art world deluding itself that at, that it's an extremely liberal and free-thinking and perhaps left-leaning entity. But one of the things that really hits home when I read about unionization is just how against unions the management, trusteeships, etc. of organisations are. Ben, could you explain just for a moment why that might be? Is there something different about the way that US museums are run to other parts of the world that would make unions a particularly antithetical entity to them? Yes. The main factor there is just that so much of museum funding in the US does not come from government sources or NGOs or nonprofits, the majority of museum funding comes from extremely wealthy people who are on boards of trustees and acquisition committees uh, and who are the ones behind closed doors making the important decisions at most of the major museums in the country. And they are people who come from the business world. And in the business world, having to deal with a union puts a kind of collective power against you. And so these are people who come from industries where union busting is pretty much standard. And so you've seen many museums in the U.S. hire kind of law firms uh, and negotiation teams that are specialized in union busting. So there's a very kind of direct application of a kind of corporate governance model to the way that a lot of U.S. museums are run. And so I think that's the main part of of that problem. And it's sort of striking that this is all happening against the backdrop of a president in Joe Biden who is ostensibly pro-union, and yet the dominant kind of museum leadership culture is still very much in a union-busting state of mind. Let's move on to another big issue in North American museums, not just in the US, but also in Canada, Ben. And that is indigenous cultures, how they are represented in museums, but also how morally, ethically museums manage both their collections and their programming around indigenous cultures. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this has been a roller coaster year for those issues, both in Canada and the US. You know, in Canada, over the summer, in the early fall, there was a, a sort of major report prepared by the main uh, museum association there, essentially urging museums to really kind of completely overhaul how they relate to not only indigenous artifacts in their collections, but also uh, indigenous people on their staff, and how to create, you know, more meaningfully engaged and reciprocal relationships with First Nations communities, uh, as they're called in Canada, to really do away with this sort of top-down or hierarchical approach that has been kind of the, the norm there. And this has all been, on the one hand, fueled in part by the residential school scandals that have kind of rocked Canada over the past two years. The residential school system was this program run by the church, but also by the Canadian government, in which hundreds of thousands of First Nations children were taken away from their families. And it was a program essentially of forced assimilation. But in the process, you know, thousands of children died and there have been a number of mass graves found on the sites of these former schools in the past two years. And that has really given new urgency and intensity to these conversations there. And this has all been even further complicated by the news in recent weeks that the National Gallery of Canada had somewhat 
unceremoniously fired their indigenous arts curator. So there's there's a kind of intense roller coaster of, of events in the Canadian uh, indigenous art world this year. But the overarching takeaway, I think, is especially from this report that the Canadian Museums Association put out, is really that you know, practices from the top to the bottom, from dealing with artifacts to hiring and working with local communities need to be you know, pretty radically overhauled. We're going to segue from that into a related issue, which is repatriation now, because Glasgow museums have repatriated objects to the Lakota people, for instance, this year. And indeed, repatriation is as big as ever. And it seems in the UK, at least, Louisa, with places like the Horniman Museum in London, we're seeing a change in the approach to objects, particularly from Benin. I think it's very interesting in the case of the Horner Museum in London, where Benin materials, and we don't say bronzes because they're not all bronze. Some of them are brass, some of them are ivory. And these materials have been now returned to Nigeria, but they're not actually all physically gone back there because what was so interesting was that the ownership has been transferred but a lot of the communities around the Horniman, the Nigerian communities based in London, are really proud that some of their artefacts are actually in the Horniman. So they are actually being loaned to the Horniman Museum, although they're already there, by the Nigerian government who now own them. And I think this is an extremely interesting case study. And I think each of these things, it's all such a very particular, each community, each case, each institution, it's all very, very particular. And I think this is very interesting how it's been dealt with by the Horniman, where it's dealing with all the different communities about how best these artefacts and these objects can be treated and represented. Absolutely. And there's a lot of British collections generally. So for instance, Oxford and Cambridge universities, Glasgow museums, as we mentioned, and also it's happening in the US, right, Ben, because Mm -hmm. the Smithsonian Institution came to an arrangement this year. Yeah, there's been a kind of parallel conversation happening here uh, with the various Benin materials that are held across the US. And the Definitely the most high profile is the Smithsonian Institution, which signed this agreement with um, the Nigerian Commission of uh, Museums and Monuments to return uh, a number of items from their collection. I believe it's the National Museum of African Arts collection to Nigeria. And there's been a a lawsuit filed uh, to try to block the return of of all the artifacts by a group essentially making the argument that to return these would be to deprive communities in the U.S. from experiencing them and their richness, which is a kind of case that I think museums have tried to make or that has been kind of one excuse used. But it's interesting to see it coming from a non-museum group really making that case and, and going to the point of filing a lawsuit over it. So lots of wrinkles. Louisa? Because the smart solution is to make partnerships, isn't it, between the institutions and the communities and to have an exchange and and a way to make as many communities as possible benefit from their experience of these objects. Absolutely. Well, Jesus College Cambridge was the first UK institution to actually give back a Benin artifact. It was a cockerel. And around a couple of months afterwards, they had a show by um, the Pakistani New York artist Charlie Sikanda in the college grounds. And it sort of proposed via a sculpture and a series of works whether a colonial power in its ex-colony can have a relationship that, instead of being an extractive one, is a very mutually beneficial one, one that is maybe even predicated on things like intimacy. It was making all these radical propositions about what it means, you know, to not just give something back, to maintain that relationship, have a knowledge exchange. You know, the Humboldt Forum, for example, is a great example of that. Ten works now currently loaned from Nigeria to the Humboldt Forum. That then justifies the idea that they're going to give money back to Nigeria. They're going to train their 
academics bring them over to the Humboldt Forum because there is a reason that the museums in Nigeria and all these ex-colonies are less equipped to handle the artefacts. It's because, you know, all their money was stolen. Of course, inevitably, we're going to talk about the British Museum again. <laughs> you know, apologies to our regular listeners to the year in review. I may have said this before. It's over to the British Museum, isn't it, Louisa? I mean, you know. Well, I mean, it just seems that they are dragging their feet, the Elgin marbles. I mean, please, they're not the Elgin marbles anymore. They're the Parthenon marbles, as they should be called, because Elgin, for whatever reason, whether he nicked them to save them from being destroyed by the Turks, whether he nicked them to put them all in his garden and keep them for himself, you know, we're never going to completely know. But the fact is that the Greek government have built this fantastic museum, this state-of-the-art museum, the Acropolis Museum by the Parthenon, where you see exactly where all these marbles, you know, came from and should be. And you go inside... And there's, you know, acres of cast of the marbles with little small fragments. Everything else has got BM, BM, BM all over it. So it really is high time. And I mean, apart from anything else, we've got 3D printing. You know, the British Museum can keep a gorgeous copy that nobody would probably even know wasn't the real thing. And it can go back. But as you've been reporting in the art newspaper, George Osborne, the chairman of the trustees of the British Museum, has been in conversation apparently for rather a long time with the Greek government about this very matter. And that, it seems to me, is the sort of route out of this, or it seems the most likely route out of this, isn't it? Returning some objects and lending some back. I think a lot of it's to do with kind of diplomatic syntax, because it's an act of government, which means that the British Museum can't give back stuff that's already got without there being an act of government. Then they'll have to go to Parliament and be all sorts of changes. So it's all about, you know, basically the Greeks quite rightly want the marbles back and so therefore if they go back even if they go back without being sort of permanently in paper return but they go back with the knowledge that they will never go back to London again it's a permanent loan or a loan that's constantly renewed there are various ways to finagle that but it's going to be tricky because it is such a political hot potato and this whole act of government thing is very problematic and of course the Greeks don't really want to have a loan of the marbles they want them back so I think there's a way to go before it does get sorted out the fact there are conversations being had, I think the last conversation was 20 years ago for an hour with the then director, Neil McGregor, you know, the Greek cultural minister. So, you know, we're moving, but I think probably rather slowly, sadly. Absolutely. Ben, in the States, is there a similar focus on the Metropolitan Museum? Because, of course, they have done a little bit of this, but it still feels like there's a lot of objects there that, that should be under question. Yeah, to be honest, uh, there has not been much focus on the Metropolitan Museum, at least not on this particular issue. I think their main battle of late has been with the Sackler name being all over their uh, galleries. <laughs> I think restitution, unfortunately, is not terribly high on their list. But certainly, you know, at any number of U.S. museums, these debates are going on. Um, I guess one thing that I would add which is not exactly analogous to what Louisa was just describing, but to sort of speak to the bureaucratic and governmental red tape around some restitution. In the U.S., one of the complicating factors, and our colleague Gabriella Angeletti has written about this quite a bit, there was an act of government passed in 1990 called NAGPRA, which I believe is the Native American Graves and Artifacts Protection Act. It's a pretty landmark package of, of legislation sort of governing the return and handling of Native American artifacts, and the upshot of it being that any museum receiving any kind of government funding had to do an audit of its collection and ensure that any Native American artifacts were returned to the proper group. And that has been complicated because many of the tribes and nations to whom these artifacts belong 
are not recognized by the federal government and therefore cannot take ownership of these objects. And so, like I said, not exactly analogous, but kind of a situation where some of the right steps have been taken, but there's this sort of back end red tape that still needs to be cut through. And so there are a lot of artifacts in American museums that those museums, directors and leaders want to return, but because of this sort of arcane system of federal and state recognition of Native American groups and tribes, they cannot actually be returned yet. So there's certainly lots of work to do. Yeah. But how fascinating that this does actually uncover this can of worms where there are people's whole nations who are not recognized by the American government. And in a way, in these artifacts, they're almost like a lightning rod where they draw all these issues, these really profound political issues, and form almost like a kind of symbolic sort of, you know, metaphor for them. So let's hope maybe that might produce some much wider reforms and changes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's been a little over 30 years now since NAGPRA was passed. And I think um, there's been some effort uh, under the Biden administration to kind of overhaul it and, and cut through some of those issues. So hopefully by this time next year, we'll be having a different conversation about it. <laughs> absolutely. Amen to that. Well, thank you, everyone, for your thoughts so far. We're just going to take a quick break. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. 2022 has been a year of extraordinary art and objects at Christie's, from the most valuable auction sale of all time with the collection of Microsoft co-founder Paul G. Allen, to the numerous free and public exhibitions like the recent Macabre selling exhibition in London. As the year draws to a close, Christie's invites you to explore new ways of transacting this holiday season. With Christie's private sales, you don't have to wait for the next auction to get the work that you love or for the hammer to come down to sell your collection. It's a bespoke and discreet service where Christie's international team of experts are at your disposal throughout your collecting journey, offering year-round buying and selling opportunities at a pace that suits you. From jewels and watches to paintings, furniture, manuscripts and photographs, there are over 193 works currently available for immediate purchase. Visit christies.com to learn more about the Christie's private sales service and discover what's in store for 2023. Welcome back. We're going to talk about the market now. We've had a few new fairs this year. Paris Plus seemed in many cases to be like FIAC. Yes, a very nice fair. So we're not going to dwell on that, actually. But Kabir, you've been to Seoul. There's quite a lot of attention on Seoul this year. What did you make of it all? I think it was a really, really interesting time to be in Seoul, for sure. Um, the city really rolled out the red carpet for the international art world that arrived. So just a bit of background. Freeze launched its first Asian fair this year in Seoul. It emerged in partnership with KIAF, uh, which is the long-standing Korean international art fair. And they were both held in the same exhibition centre called the COEX in Gangnam in the city south, one floor on top of the other. That partnership seems quite tenuous, if I'll be honest. There were a couple of sort of simmering tensions, for like, for example, the fact that the KIAF president wasn't invited to the, the Free Seoul dinner, which apparently was a big snafu. So I've heard... Um, um, so I think it's very much a case of Freeze and Endeavour coming in and muscling out this fair. Overall, the fair seemed to be of a pretty high standard. It did feel very much like a Freeze fair. It didn't have a super Korean feel to it. There were about, I would say, 12 to 15 Korean galleries there fair amount from East Asia. But I wonder what that will look like when the Kiev partnership inevitably runs dry. 
the art world and I think the wider world has a tendency to have a rather myopic view of Asia and its different territories. And it strikes me that there's this attention on Seoul as an alternative to Hong Kong and so on. What do you make of that balance? And could Seoul and Hong Kong both coexist very happily as art world centres rather than one having to be the Asian centre of the art world? I mean, I think it's a fair point. I do think it definitely tries to pit various hubs against one another. That being said, Hong Kong star really is falling and the position of its art market is in jeopardy. It's not going anywhere just yet. It still commands a vast bulk of, you know, auction sales and primary market sales in East Asia. But nonetheless, I think the fact that you've seen not just Seoul, but also Singapore and Tokyo receive investment from various fair companies, for example, Art Basel's parent MCH is helping organized Art Week Tokyo and then also acquired a 15% stake in Singapore's Art SG which is going to launch in 2023 January. I think that surely is a sign that people are looking to sort of diversify away from Hong Kong and also China. Similarly for example we saw Photo Fair Shanghai which is owned by um, Angus Montgomery the biggest fair organizers in Asia Pacific they're opening up a New York fair again so clearly the idea of just having all your eggs in one basket, be that Hong Kong, mainland China, both, it doesn't seem that tenable. That being said, yes, of course, you know, more than one hub can exist. And looking at things like Seoul and Singapore, for example, the two sort of do complement each other in a way. Seoul is not a free port in the way that Singapore is. Nonetheless, Seoul has a huge amount that's going on for it. It's a very, very culturally exciting city, has great art schools. A lot of artists live there. Singapore, for example, perhaps a bit more sterile, doesn't have the cool gallery scene. So yes, you can have those two things that complement one another. And it also should be said that, you know, it might sound stupid, but East Asia is absolutely huge as a territory as well and Hong Kong had that very unique geographical position where it is probably one of the only cities in the region that is a short haul flight away from all the other centers of wealth but you know people coming from Singapore to Seoul that's a six or seven hour flight it's not going to be just like popping off on the train so you probably do need more than one city to reign supreme there. Absolutely. Ben you've just been at Art Basel Miami Beach mm-hmm. we heard from Annie Shaw from the fair and she felt that even though of course there were big sales being made there's just a little sense in which the market is turning downwards what was your impression yeah i would say the same uh, there certainly wasn't the same level of excited and sort of buzzy cooped up energy that we had in 2021 last year uh, in miami it was really kind of this fervor of everybody had been locked up for the better part of a year and was just dying to socialize and make sales and spend some of the money that they hadn't spent going on extravagant trips on art. And that was really felt. And the absence of it was pretty palpable this year. And I think part of that was just that pent-up demand didn't exist this year. But I think there was, uh, as any kind of articulated, things are slowing down and I think some sort of preemptory kind of holding back of purchases. I spoke to one collector who said that, you know, you know, more than 90% of U.S. businesses are in a worse place now than they were a year ago. And, you know, one way or another, that's going to translate to how, you know, those businesses owners and those businesses executives are spending their money. And you really did feel that at the fair. It's odd, isn't it, talking about this when we'd had an auction season in which there was one sale in which there were several works which sold for over $100 million with fees. Yeah, But it seems to me that we've got 
you know, stellar collection auctions, and then you've got the rest of the market. <laughs> There's a big difference between a big collection being sold at a major auction house and then whatever else is happening elsewhere, would you say? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I would say also, I mean, the Paul Allen sale that you're referring to at Christie's in uh, in November in New York, which totaled across two sales over $1.6 billion, including fees, which is, you know, by almost double the biggest single owner auction ever. That benefited from a number of things that are fairly unique to that sale and also to Christie's behind the scenes machinations of setting up guarantees and irrevocable bids. And so making it certain almost to set such a record and being able to tell the story about Paul Allen, this visionary collector and co-founder of Microsoft, you know, there were all these sort of factors that I think aligned to make that kind of the absolute grand slam. I think that sale was somewhat unique, but I think, you know, you're right that we did see a number of pretty unique collections perform exceptionally well this auction season in New York. But on the flip side of that, at certain sales, you really did notice a kind of slackening of enthusiasm for those kind of, I believe Annie's favorite term is red chip artists, that younger generation of kind of seemingly destined to become blue chip artists. There wasn't the same sort of just absolute bidding fervor for some of those works. The Phillips evening sale especially just didn't have that level of excitement that we were seeing last year or even in the first kind of round of post-pandemic sales in late 2020. There is a kind of sense that maybe it's the, the sort of like speculative element of the art market and the auction market that's kind of stepping away a little bit after a pretty frenzied couple of years. I also do think you're seeing a bit of a lack of frenzy even for some of, um, I'll use another of Annie's favourite terms, pale, male and stale artists like Sides <laughs> Wombly and de Kooning that actually away from those headline, you know, very PR massage sales like the Paul Allen, the Solinger, didn't do terribly well. You had a blackboard Sides Wombly that, a very, very comparable one that sold in, I think, 2017 for about 75 million. It barely made its low estimate at 40 million. I think it was sold to the third party bidder. Similarly, you had de Kooning at Christie's that you know just didn't land perhaps because it wasn't museum quality but obviously as you pertain to the fact is that even if we are in a total recession if a surat like the one that we saw at the Paul Allen sale comes up for sale it's going to sell and it's going to sell well that isn't a good mark of how the economy is doing. Now one of the most spectacular falls that we've seen recently has been of crypto. Kabir is the NFT market really struggling now? Gosh, I mean, it would seem so, what is it, like a 99% decrease in sales from the peak of last year? It's not looking great, no. Nonetheless, you know, while I have my big reservations about crypto and NFTs, fluctuations and big rises and falls were factored in. All the experts did say, you know, wait for the crash, even at the peak. Everyone was taken by surprise by how high the peak was. They clearly are going to say, inevitably, there's going to be a fall. The sad thing is that it clearly seemed that speculation was built into this market because NFT resales, the royalties that um, were touted as one of the best things about this industry or this part of the industry are already sort of slipping away. I think it's four or five cryptocurrency exchanges are no longer honoring that resale right. As it turns out, you know, maybe it was obvious to some people, but not maybe even obvious to me. There's actually no way of enforcing that. Again, it's entirely to do with the goodwill of these crypto That people. to me is utterly shocking because this was the big thing about NFT apart from lots of digital crypto kids making lots of money, was it was going to be great for artists because these contracts were built in. So if you're an artist and you minted an NFT, you would get resale after resale after resale. And this is complete nonsense, apparently. Everyone's ducking out of their responsibilities and it can't be enforced. 
Ben, is it also going to affect the auctions as well and some of the contemporary market in a wider sense? Because weren't a lot of our new collectors, as it were, people that have made their money from crypto? Yeah, I think so. I mean, hard to tell what percentage of that contingent were, let's say, quote unquote, serious collectors or people who are truly uh, interested in collecting art. But certainly there was some spillover from that incredible crypto wealth that we saw accumulated last year into people actually buying art at auction, you know, sort of non-fungible art objects as opposed to tokens. And we saw all the auction houses, both Christie's especially, really sort of jumping into that space pretty aggressively. Um, and I think, I believe it was Sotheby's that also created a metaverse in which to show virtual art. So there's been a kind of wholesale adoption of that market by the auction houses, and it'll be very interesting to see you know, to what extent they stick with it and to what extent they don't. And, you know, there are also major galleries, most notably Pace, that have really jumped into the space. And I think now their challenge will probably be not only sort of aggressively courting that crypto collector set, but also trying to sort of convert their more established client base toward these digital assets. And that seems like a a challenging task, but you know, I'm, I'm sure we're going to see some more aggressive moves in that direction. But it's not going to be a good look, is it? If it stiffs the artists now, and there's, I mean, I thought the one thing about NFTs was it was, you know, it was all about provenance. It was on the blockchain. It was absolutely fine for artists. If this is all nonsense, and okay, it's a vehicle for making money and speculating in the crypto economy, but it's going to be very lacking credibility across the art institutions, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and we've seen a few museums, um, the ICA in Miami, uh, among them, you know, acquire uh, NFTs. And it is, it's very interesting to see sort of what the kind of institutional engagement with NFTs is going to be. And it's sort of morbidly funny that this crypto crash is coming, you know, on the heels of Ethereum, the main cryptocurrency favored by NFTs, you know, doing a lot of work to reduce their carbon footprint, which was sort of the other big issue with NFTs at the outset was this concern over the incredible amount of energy it requires to to mint NFTs and to tabulate the various transactions that happen on the blockchain. And, you know, a lot of meaningful work was actually being done to reduce that. And then the market kind of bottomed out. So no one's going to care about that either, are they, really? I mean, they're not <laughs> going to care about the artists, not going to care about the environmental impact. It'll be a quick way to make money. But I mean, ultimately, there were digital creators who were doing this long before the boom and I think that you know once again all the finance and all the art world attention leaves they'll still be doing it as well and so I do think that some of it is going to endure. Absolutely yeah. Digital art is a long-standing form of art and it will continue when all the speculators and people like the footballer John Terry have evacuated the NFTs <laughs> market. Let's talk about, stick with art and, and proper art, <laughs> dare I say it. And we're going to talk about sort of big biennales and so on this year. Uh, Kabir, in a way, you saw the one that's attracted the most attention. You've written about it numerous times this year. It's Documenta in Kassel in Germany. It happens every five years. This year was a particularly controversial edition. Tell us more about it. Yes, this was a particularly controversial edition, although I should get into later, not the only controversial edition that Documenter has had in its history. So this edition was curated by the Indonesian collective Ruan Grupa, and they sort of centred the entire exhibition around this concept called Lumbung, which is the Indonesian word for rice barn, and basically that pertains to sort of things like resource sharing and collectivism, and was sort of a very bold take on the Western art world and how individualistic it is, and sort of robust 
rebuttal to that and basically they invited a large amount of collectors I think around 50 or so collectors to show works those collectors then were able to invite other collectors to join them it created an incredibly sprawling show just located in Castle but nonetheless it felt very very freeform it was an incredibly enjoyable experience it was one of the best vibes of any art experience I've already had before nonetheless the show was actually mired in controversy prior to it even opening because of the pro boycott divestment and sanctions a stance or BDS stance of a couple of its artists who are pro-Palestine obviously that has different ramifications in Germany which has very very strict issues around being anti-Israel and anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism issues and so there was already a heightened scrutiny upon the exhibition for that reason there were also a couple of racially motivated attacks and vandalism on some of the exhibitions venues when it opened the atmosphere was pretty convivial but on the Monday so after most of the press had left a very very large-scale work in front of the Friedrichsanium which is one of the biggest museums in Castle where part of the exhibition is held by an Indonesian collective called Tarang Paddy called People's Justice work from 2002 that depicted various instances of um, political repression and violence in the Sawati regime in Indonesia two images were singled out as being particularly anti-Semitic and quite frankly they were anti-Semitic and it was very much a case of the fact that Ruan Grouper in their wonderful curation which is very free form had also not really done a close inspection of the show in fact you know to call them curators wouldn't be kind of a mistake and I think they would have said they aren't as well and it was sort of felt a bit of an inevitability that without this close inspection that one might have from a traditional you know quote-unquote western curator things like this slipped with the net it obviously caused a lot of upset and a lot of furor from German media which had already been reporting on the exhibition with some fervor and in a way kind of wanted it to fail and in some senses it did. It seems to me that there is a massive division between communities on this documentary in the sense that almost everyone that I've seen writing about it or talking about it from within the art world seems to think it's an extraordinarily good show, as you said, a really great experience. And they seem to be able to say the examples of anti-Semitism are a small example. They do not in any way represent the rest of the show. And then on the other hand, you've got people dismissing it out of hand because of those examples. Tell me more about that. Yeah, very much. It has definitely polarised the art world and also, I just guess, society in general. And I think it's also, it's really held a mirror up to Germany and shown them what their society is and how their history in the 20th century continues to shape their politics. I think not only within the art world did it cause polarization, but it was really interesting that German language press versus English language press reported on the situation very, very differently, even prior to it opening in Castle. Ruin Grouper, for all their sins, did apologize and Taring Paddy also apologized. Yes, they made a mistake. It was an oversight on the Biennial's part. However, I do also think that the entire situation was also blown out of proportion. There were um, numerous accounts of racism and racist attacks as well against documenter exhibitors and staff. Those did not get the same traction in the German media. So you do have to consider whether it is an arguably one-sided debate here. Ruin Grouper a couple of weeks ago or maybe last week were listed as the number one in art reviews, Power 100. So you can see that a certain faction of the art world does consider them to be heroes. Their art credentials are still intact. There you go. I mean, it'll be 
be interesting to consider the legacy. Documenter is a pretty slow burn, but in the immediate effect, uh, the Director General, Sabine Shawman, departed from her post. Documenter is now coming under greater federal control. As Claudia wrote, the German Culture Minister has announced. So there are going to be some immediate fallout from it. And then the legacy of Lumbung, I guess, will be seen in years to come. Ben, you saw actually one of the first big biennials of the year, which was the Whitney Biennial. What did you think of that? Did it sort of hit the nail on the head in terms of an assessment of what's going on in US and international art right now? Yeah, it's interesting, actually, because, you know, as much as Documenta was sort of mired in controversy this year, this Whitney Biennial was maybe the first in at least a decade that hasn't had some kind of controversy or scandal come out of it, which isn't to say that there weren't works that were, you know, very political or overtly, you know, referencing current issues. But for whatever reason, there wasn't that kind of lightning rod work or project that kind of invited either scandal or or a response. But that being said, I mean, in my view, it was a very successful Whitney Biennial. It was titled Quiet As It's Kept, which is a reference to this expression, this colloquial expression, which essentially means sort of like, you know, it's an open secret that nobody articulates. And it was co-curated by David Breslin and Adrian Edwards, who are both full-time staff curators at the Whitney. In my books, it was a very successful biennial. It really sort of transformed the museum, which is a kind of a challenging architectural vessel to wrangle with. And I think they did a really admirable job organizing it primarily over two floors of the museum, one of which was this kind of airy, light-filled space. There were no kind of floor-to-ceiling walls. Everything was installed on these kind of temporary grid-like mounts. And so there was sort of like this incredible light passing through the space. It was very kind of open and, and airy. And then the floor above was the exact opposite. It was this very dark, very kind of gloomy space. There was a lot of black carpeting. All the walls were painted black. So there was this real kind of like almost funeral kind of uh, atmosphere to it. And it, it really felt like it was responding to this very sort of polarized moment that we're living in, but also kind of coming out of of COVID and the period of intense grief and, and challenge and trying to kind of look to the future optimistically. So it was, in my books, you know, a, a really powerful and successful biennial. And there were, I could go through the entire catalog listing sort of meaningful <laughs> projects, but there was a lot of really fantastic work in it. And Louisa, you and I were in Venice and there was a lot of fantastic work in that too, wasn't there? Well, yes. I mean, the main thing about this Venice Biennale was it was postponed for a year because of COVID. And so the wonderful curator, I think she was a wonderful curator, is a wonderful creator, Cecilia Alemani, curated this show called The Milk of Dreams. She had more time to do it. There was 90% women from across the globe. It was historical. It was contemporary. I mean, The Milk of Dreams, the title comes from Leonora Carrington, surrealist book. And so there was very much a kind of surreal, visceral feel about the exhibition itself. But also... Just great women. I mean, Sonia Boyce, I mean, I'm being a bit partisan here, but the British representative, she won the Golden Lion for her fantastic British pavilion, to my mind, that was resurrecting forgotten black British singers, but made this incredible installation, which is very ornate, very glorious. Um, Also, Simone Lee with her massive monumental, fantastic sculptures. I mean, she thatched the American pavilion. (laughs) She turned it into a kind of traditional longhouse, you know, and then with these great sculptures, which also punctuated the beginning of uh, Cecilia's show as well. She could have won the Golden Lion for both pavilion and artist in the Biennial, which is the one that she actually did win. Absolutely, absolutely, yes. And then, of course, there are all these other great exhibitions. I mean, again, women, Marlene Dumas at the Palazzo Grassi, which was the most fantastic retrospective, I thought, of her work. 
work and, and also surrealism and magic at the Guggenheim, more surrealists, and then also a great Louise Nevelson exhibition as well. And the big, just to use Annie Shaw, our lovely art newspaper colleague's term, pale male and somewhat stale, there was quite a big beast moment there with Anselm Kiefer, who sort of occupied Doge's palace, taking on Tintoretto and, and, and the Veronese's, these thundering enormous, as only he can do. Went bigger but, than Tintoretto, which is hard to do. Bigger than Tintoretto. I mean, they were amazing, but it was sort of almost like the baying of a sort of large dinosaur thrashing his tail around. The women being rather more elliptical and rather more interesting. I mean, it wasn't about COVID. It wasn't political in that respect, but it was massively political in others because it spoke to subjectivity. It spoke to, you know, alternative viewpoints, alternative genders, alternative histories in a really wonderful way. Lots of gender fluidity as well. Lots of non-binary artists, but not in a kind of tokenistic way. It just looked like a really great show to my mind it absolutely did and we're going to conclude by looking at our favorite works of the year ben i'm going to start with you sure happily Uh, i mean this was a tough assignment but in the end one of my favorite works and not because it was especially sort of impressive in scale or dramatic in how it made its statement but actually kind of the opposite it's sort of this relatively sort of exquisite and small-scaled painting by Cecilia Vicuña, the Chilean artist. Uh, it was a painting that was in her survey exhibition at the Guggenheim here in New York. And it's this painting called Three Spirals. And it's this gorgeous little painting on a kind of vibrant yellowy-orange backdrop. And per the title, there are three different kinds of spirals. So in the center is this conch shell trumpet, which is this sort of vessel for kind of indigenous knowledge in Mayan culture. On the right, is the spiral shape of Frank Lloyd Wright's Guggenheim Museum in New York, where the exhibition was being held. And on the left was the form of the Chukikamata, I believe is the correct pronunciation, the largest open pit copper mine in the world, which is in northern Chile, and which for about a decade in the early 20th century belonged to the Guggenheim family. And so it was this quite audacious statement about how the Guggenheim family sort of came to their wealth, not only uh, through kind of extractive practices in Chile, but across the world. You know, they owned mining uh, enterprises in in Mexico, in Bolivia, in the Congo. You know, this was a major source of wealth for the Guggenheim and sort of directly translates to their fantastic collection and their their incredible museums. Um, And so it was a pretty bold statement, in my view, to kind of bring everything back to kind of not only this sort of massive and pretty destructive mining operation and directly implicating the Guggenheim in the wealth that was created from it. And then also, you know, that particular mine was nationalized under the socialist government of Salvador Allende in the early 1970s, who was then deposed in a U.S.-backed coup. So it all kind of like comes back together in also implicating kind of American imperialism and interventionism. So it's a really understated but pretty masterful piece of work. And I'm still thinking about it today. That's a great choice. Thanks, Ben. And Louisa. Of course, we have Cecilia Vacuna in the Turbine Hall at Tate Modern at the moment, and she won a Golden Lion at Venice as well. So she ties in in all directions. <laughs> but I'm not going to pick her work in the Tate. I'm going to pick her work in the other Tate, in Tate Britain, which is Hugh Locke's The Procession. And this is the most extraordinary work. It was unveiled in the summer, and it's still up until the 22nd of January 2023. And it's 
very spectacular, but I think in a really rich and meaningful way. It is what it says. It is a procession. It's about a hundred or so figures, children, women, horses, life-size all, wearing masks, wearing costumes. It's a carnival. It's a funeral procession. It's a historical procession. It's an elegy. It's a memorial. The level of detail. A lot of these figures are masks, or are the masks their faces. They represent Haitian communities, Jamaican communities. There's costumes printed on share certificates. I mean, the level of detail is absolutely extraordinary. And it has so many mixed messages. I've gone back to the tape gazillions of times since it was unveiled at the beginning of the summer. And I keep seeing new things, new details. And I think it's such a ripe moment for our times. And Hugh Locke is famous for messing with monuments. So I'm going to shoehorn in a quickie that he also did last summer in Birmingham on the Queen Victoria statue in Birmingham, where he put her in a boat. This is a statue that's been there since the early 20th century. He put her in a boat. She had four other doppelganger, Queen Victoria's, all in masks, all holding shields, memorialising colonial battles across the Commonwealth, across the Empire, and it coincided with the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham, and it was the first time that he'd really intervened with a statue. He'd always had many projects before, but this was actually a real one. It was all carefully done, so it will be taken away again, but it was so impactful and so sinister, but also so kind of beautiful as well. They were wearing these extraordinary gold masks, all the Queen Victorias, and it corresponded beautifully with the procession that's still parading down the Tate Duveen Gallery now. So a really great work. And he has some works on the outside of the Met as well in New York. So he's really covering all bases. And quite a good thing too. He's a South Londoner. He's my neighbour. And, um, you know, he's spreading spreading his great work in his 60s. Absolutely. He's been making great work for so long. Yeah. And he's been completely, consistently excellent for his whole career. And now he's really getting in the well, spotlight. Well, this is, is it, fantastic. you know. And I mean, it's, it's so good that these artists are of such huge quality, whether it's Sonia Boyce, whether it's him, whether it's so, so many others who are now getting their just place in the spotlight. Absolutely. Kabir. Oh, I think my answer is much less fashionable than either of Ben or Louise's. It is um, Picasso's Guernica, which I had the pleasure of seeing, but on the 24th of February, which was the day that Russia invaded Ukraine, I was there for Arco Fair. I went to the Reina Sofia, where it is on permanent display, to look at the rehang by its director, Manuel Bojavilel. And then it, it suddenly dawned on me that I was in front of Guernica during a moment where Europe had re-emerged into a land war. And and everyone around the painting wasn't speaking either. I think people were just looking at one another. And it was just one of those moments where nothing needed to be said because the painting was sort of articulating everything for us. And it just kind of brought home, A, that I can't believe we're here again, you know, nearly 100 years afterwards that once again we've entered into war. But also that art just somehow can always have a synchronicity with real life. What a great answer, Kabir. Thank you. My work of the year is a work by William Kentridge in the Royal Academy, and it's about the Sybil, the Cumaine Sybil. And it's one of his great installations, which features, as ever, a tumult of words and images and sound and performance. And it includes, for instance, his drawings from Michelangelo's Sybils on the Sistine Ceiling, and it includes a song which is among the most plaintive, beautiful things I've ever heard in a gallery. It reduced me to floods of tears, and it was just the most moving work by an extraordinary and brilliant artist who continues to keep giving us extraordinary things year after year after year. And he's everywhere in the world right now. So if he is near you, which he probably is, go and see whatever he has done really near you. <laughs> 
everybody thank you so much Kabir thank you thank you Ben Louisa thank you thank you and Ben thank you very much thank you it was a pleasure You can, of course, hear more on all the subjects we discussed on various podcasts across this year and further back in our catalogue. And you can read our reporting on all of these issues online at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for Android or iOS, which you can download from Google Play or the App Store. That's it for 2022. We'll be back and looking ahead to what 2023 offers on the 13th of January. You can find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Amy Dawson, Henrietta Bentel and David Clack. And David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Louisa, Kabir and Ben. And a big thank you to you for listening. See you next year. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.